Hello everyone and welcome to Side Dish. This is an IFT podcast that dishes up perspectives from multiple disciplines relating to the science of food and developing your career in this rapidly changing professional ecosystem. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. This episode is one of a pair. The overarching topic that we're going to be talking about is sensory science. And in this first episode, we'll be taking a deep dive into quantitative descriptive analysis and a fresh approach that's being taken with that tool. In a subsequent episode, we'll be digging into new ways to gain that critical consumer feedback on your food's sensory qualities, a truly not to be missed conversation. So look out for that one too. However, as I mentioned, today is all about quantitative descriptive analysis or QDA. This is a sensory tool that was developed back in the mid 1970s and was developed to correct some of the perceived problems with flavor profile analysis. Yes, it's got a complex title, but don't worry as we've got two amazing guests today who are both experts in the field of sensory analysis and they're gonna explain it all to us. And even better, they're gonna be talking about some of the changes that they've made to the basic methodology that makes this tool even more productive. I'm really excited today to be able to chat with both Becky Blybum and Heather Thomas. Now, Becky earned her Bachelor of Science at University of California in Davis and her Master's at Washington University in St. Louis. And after many years in the sensory science field, she is still teaching sensory and consumer science at UC Davis and is also the President and Chief Sensory Intelligence Officer at Dragonfly SCI. Heather also earned her Bachelor of Science at University of California in Davis and has also spent many years in the sensory science field and is currently the Chief Data and Analytics Officer at Dragonfly SCI. Becky and Heather, welcome to Side Dish. Thank you, Bruce. Nice to be here. Thank you, Bruce. Glad to be here. Now, I'd like to start today by asking each of you to tell us a little bit about the path you've taken to get to the roles you've got today. Perhaps you can also help us appreciate why you're excited about the work you're doing right now. Becky, let's start with you. Well, my path has been a long uh, path. And, and, you know, I tell you, I grew up in, in Illinois on a farm. Agriculture is in my blood. I ended up at UC Davis, and that's a very ag school. Yeah. And one of the required classes with was Rosemary Pangborn on in sensory evaluation of foods. And uh, once I got to that course and understood the breadth and the depth of what she was teaching and how it was being applied to companies, it just really sparked my interest. And, you know, Stone and Seidel used to come over to Davis and give lectures regularly. Oh, isn't that fantastic? And, uh, yeah. Some of those lectures just really inspired me. There were plenty of job opportunities for students. And uh, it was a fascinating field from that very beginning. And I was Tragon's first intern back in the day. So, you know, that got my start in, and I got introduced to QDA very early on. Um, that was the early 80s. And I just fell in love with that and being able to look at perception, map perception, give quantitative results and uh, see how that impacts or how the sensory attributes really impact consumers. Oh, that's fantastic. So Heather, what about you? What, what was your career path look like? Well, I was at Davis as an undergrad and really uh, struggled with what I wanted to do until I found the sensory group. And that was Rosemary Pangborn, as Becky mentioned, and her uh, ability to teach that information and all of the staff there and the students really learning that information really got me in a foundation of what is sensory in the world of food science. 
And that's when I also met Joel Seidel and was hired immediately out of undergraduate to join the firm that they had of Tragon. And I started really at the foundations of what sensory is of serving samples and preparing products for consumers to evaluate. And that's where I began and started to move into the data analysis. And that's really where I found my passion of really looking at the numbers and um, uh, making interpretation of what those numbers mean in terms of actionable results related for these companies to provide information for and products to their consumers. Right. So good hard data stuff. Yes, I'm the data <laughs> one. <laughs> so Heather, when we first all learned about sensory evaluation of foods, it, it felt like there was like a dizzying array of tools available to us. And, and that surely can be quite daunting for some people. So, so why should we persevere? Why should food businesses use sensory research? And, and how can they make sure they're using the right tools for the question they're trying to solve? I think that point is really a good point that there are so many different methods out there that are sensory types of methods, an array that any analyst or or, uh, food professional could use to gather information about their products from discrimination tests all the way up into optimizations of multi-country evaluation of products and their liking. So there's a an array of different types of uh, tools out there for the sensory professional, and they do have to make those choices. It is daunting, but I think that there is a clear path of what each of those types of procedures, what the information is that is supplied to the user. So for understanding your products, the simplest thing are the two production lines different. Uh, that's one of those simple decision makings right. that has to be known. Are you giving the, the same product to the consumer? Mm. And it, it really gives you that type of information from, from the basics all the way up to what do consumers prefer and how do we create a product that would be uh, beneficial to a segment of the population? How can we gather market share out there? So the gamut is there, but if we aren't using those tools and using them properly, our sensory tools will be misused and interpreted incorrectly. So there really has to be a foundation of understanding those methods. Yeah, isn't that the truth? We would really understand the methods thoroughly so we know what we're getting out of it and therefore know what problem we're solving. Mm. So look, I'm sure that some of our listeners have heard about QDA and possibly even many have had a little bit of experience with it. However, I feel like the tool itself still remains a bit of a mystery to to many of us. Becky, can can I ask you to help us with what QDA actually is and how it works? Well, QDA stands for Quantitative Descriptive Analysis. And so describing a product, you know, that's the descriptive part. What, What language do people use? What are you trying to make? We ask companies this a lot. How do you describe the products you're trying to make? And they typically don't have a very robust language to describe the products. How do you communicate with each other and with consumers? And so descriptive is really allowing a group of people that are screened and qualified uh, to to be on the panel uh, based on sensory acuity, but allow them to develop a language for the product. You know, what's it look like? What's it smell like? What's it taste like and feel like? And, you know, aftertaste. And once you quantify, once you describe and then measure the sensory attributes, it gives you a fingerprint of what that product is. And, you know, we, we use it for a lot of different reasons. And what Heather alluded to is, you know, we talk about where do you aim your cannons? How do you, um, 
what are you trying to make and why? Who's it going to yeah. satisfy and why? Yes. And, uh, you know, and we've seen so many companies, de- you know, just develop a product and put it out there and not really understand um, as you as you grow your business and you bring on co-manufacturers or another production facilities, uh, you know, how do you define that product so you can teach the, the co-manufacturers what you're really trying to produce and and measure and know when they've actually achieved the product that you have in mind? Right, right. So, so Heather, I wonder if we might ask you to build on that a little bit and tell us about some of the key strengths of, of QDA as opposed to other sensory tools and, and maybe even provide us with some uh, real-world examples that, that you've seen as to how it adds value to food businesses. Yes, the QDA method provides a product profile is how I like to envision it. That's good. I like that. It gives you a sensory picture or blueprint of really what is your product from its appearance, its aroma, how does it taste and how does it feel in the mouth and are there any lingering aftertaste? So you get a real big picture of what your product is. And using QDA can provide lots of different directions. And one of them is the uh, product variability that occurs within plants. And I, I kind of started on that, that as, as products are moving through the production plants, are we creating the same product? Or are we not creating the same product? Well, QDA provides that real beautiful footprint of what is that product and does it change? Is there a sensory perceptual change mm-hmm. between one line or one plant? What are the differences? And are those differences statistically perception? Can a consumer statistically perceive that as being different? Right. And so those profiles are really beneficial to a production plant. And one of the examples of this is that in a bakery line, that measuring the different places on that that conveyor belt of the bakery line, whether it was in the, the line on the top, the line in the middle, or the line on the bottom, how brown in color and how crispy did it make that product? Well, depending mm-hmm. on where that product was on the line, we could measure that consumers and the QDA can perceive those differences and quantify that and tell us how different are those as they move through the line. Are we producing the same product or not? Great information for the company. They could make changes and make a more consistent product. Right. I've often heard the uh, the QDA printout being described as a bit of a spider web. Is that is that something that you like to use or does that help or does that hinder? What, what do you think? Oh, that's, that's definitely very helpful. And that is one of the foundational outputs of the QDA methodology is the spider graph. That was the way to change from a line scale, which is what the, the, the panel is measuring on, and convert that into a line that's a visual and a comparative visual as it moves around the spokes of that spider graph. And as you move out of that line on that line, the intensity increases. Mm. So that's the picture of a large product, a small intensity product, where does it increase or decrease? And then it's a comparative as well. So along that spider graph, you can have multiple lines and those lines indicate those products and how different are they or how similar are they? A very good visual. Right. And, and the, the access of those, that, those lines can be texture, can be aroma, can be flavor, can be almost any element, can't it? Yes, it can be. And it can be those attributes that are just 
the most important to what consumers like. So we can really focus down, not just on the whole profile, but where do we need to really focus our attention to the uh, most important attributes that drive liking? Right. Now, now, of course, we promised our listeners that we'll give them an inside scoop on to how you, you're making the QDA tool even more useful. Becky, can I go back to you and ask you to tell us about what that's all about and why does it make a difference? Well, you know, we are out in the San Francisco Bay Area, right? And so we call it Cell Valley. And we, you know, there's so much work in all protein and so many different categories and and companies that are bringing in high tech, but they don't have the culinary experience. They don't have the food science experience necessarily. And how do you blend all of that and give them feedback? And we see that QDA provides that uh, communication tool between the R&D teams and the marketing teams. What are you trying to produce? How close are you? And as you change variables, what kind of sensory experience does that provide? And is that what consumers want? Right. Um, and then if it's not, then how, you know, how far off are you and, and how do you give that feedback to developers uh, so they can make uh, decisions in, in their formulations and, and make it better, try to hit those targets? Mm-hmm. So, so, so what are you doing with the QDA tool itself and in terms of the methodology that you're using, which is taking it into a new space? Well, you know, we're, we talk about rapid methods all the time, and, and QDA has been known to be time-consuming, right, and a little bit expensive. Right. It, it's, a, it's a concerted effort to get the panel together and, and do everything that it takes to get that spider plot created. Right. So, um, so you know, we, we like to provide good value but also good data, and we've, we've pivoted a little bit. When we started Dragonfly Sci in 2017, we got together a group of culinary professionals and realized that their language skills were fantastic and they love to work together. And what used to take us eight to 10 hours to create a, a language from a consumer panel uh, that were still serene and qualified, still great data, but the culinary professionals just, they could do that within about a 90 minute period. They, their language skills oh. are fantastic. We can, so we can shorten that. I mean, that becomes our rapid method. And we typically have, um, within a three hour session. So the first hour and a half is language development. The second hour and a half is data collection because we don't want to skimp on the quality of the data to make those decisions. And it's been fantastic. We've looked at a lot of panel performance metrics from, you know, Heather has been definitely involved in all of that over the years at at Tragon. We know what uh, good data looks like. Mm. We were very impressed with uh, what the culinary panel could do and provide that rapid feedback at a reasonable value for for companies so we we really like that we look at um a lot of different things and you know the the culinary group too some of these companies aren't quite sure chefs are on the front line of the food industry and they are involved in the trends they're global they know all these different cultures and and a wide range of activities and when we were in covid especially we needed to keep this process going. And so they know their way around a kitchen. They know their way around scales and thermometers and everything to create that scientific process and still give us uh, good high quality data. Right, right. So given that you're using panelists that are culinary trained, how does that change what other information that we might be able to draw from the participants beyond just the sensory aspects alone? Exactly. That's what we say. There are benefits beyond the traditional QDA method because, you know, panel, you get a data file, but now we can ask these chefs. We did a, 
you know, huge array of spices. How would you use this? And and where would this product go? Would you serve this in your restaurant or would you serve it like at a banquet or, you know, like people that you don't know versus your, you know, where does it fit in the, in the food chain um, for these guys? And, and, you know, it's, it's information to start helping companies make better decisions on, uh, you know, as they scale up, as they go out and validate with a larger group of consumers, for example, we can get early insights into products that should not move part forward versus ones that have some potential. Right. But, you know, we typically when you're looking for a, a group of panelists to participate in QDA, you need to be able to draw from a pretty large field so you're not overworking the same people time and time again. How do you manage that with needing to have culinary professionals, professionals as part of the, uh, the panel? Well, we've got about 25 uh, culinary professionals on our group and anytime we need about 10 plus or minus two. So we, you know, they don't participate on every panel, but we do have a core group that um, they like to do it and we work around their hours. We have set hours that we do our panel and um, you know, it's not typically not when chefs are busy, it's morning sessions. We provide that flexibility. And, you know, the nice thing about the, the panel too, is we do Zoom sessions if we're doing a situation like that. So we can have the companies, the R&D team or the marketing team, listen into that language development, taste products alongside, because we want them to, to embrace that language and be able to take that back to their company and understand what the data is telling them. Uh, so, the, so the product travels and the people stay put and uh, you do it remotely via Zoom. That's interesting. We, we do a hybrid method and some products work better in home than others. So we, you know, we have ability to do it in person or in home, but we really encourage um, that active participation by the, the clients or the people that are needing this information so they can understand and internalize and then be able to make decisions based on that. Right. Okay. So, so Heather, I'd like to bring you back into the, the, the conversation again and and ask you about, um, you know, as we were all learning the basics of century evaluation, we all had it hammered into us that what we need most is the views of real consumers. How do we make sure that in using culinary professionals that the consumer voice is not lost? Well, the, the, the panel on the QDA method is really designed as an instrument, a tool that we use to measure with. And so their perceptions are, are not necessarily the perceptions of the consumer out there. So the information that we're gathering from the QDA methodology is a real quantitative descriptive result that is an instrument. And we want to relate that information to what our consumers in the population are viewing. And consumers in the population usually are not very good at telling us if it's if it's very salty or if it's uh, too sweet or if the crunch is not right. But what they are good at telling us is if they like it. And yes. so that's the information that we want to gather from the consumer. And then we re relate our instrument, our data from the panel to them. So we have that pool of 10 people that really describe it. And all we need them to use is their sensory perception to quantify. So it's okay that they're that they don't have a worldview, but what's nice about the culinary panel is they do have a wide experience across many different categories of products because of their world of food. So if if I'm characterizing this correctly, is it that we first take a 
a product that you know consumers like, and then you take it to your culinary trained QDA panel to, to fingerprint that, to say, now I've, got, I've captured exactly how this product can be described so I can reproduce that time and time again. Is, is, would that be a reasonable characterization? Yes, absolutely. That is one of the methods that of, of already identifying that as a well-liked product and making sure you can reproduce it using the QDA panel as your instrument to fingerprint and monitor over time. The, the benefit of that panel is that you can monitor the one month, the next month, are we continuing month after month, year after year? Mm. Are we producing what the consumers like best? Yeah, yeah. So, so Becky, earlier on in the conversation, you you glancingly referred to the fact that QDA typically used to be quite a lengthy process, and you know, usually lengthy processes in uh, in uh, sensory evaluation of foods is are often the more expensive ones as well. So the problem that we often run into when we're conducting sensory evaluation of foods are the costs. How does this approach really help or is it not that significant? Tell, tell me about the cost profile and the time profile comparison between the, what you're doing now versus what's traditionally done. That's a good question. I mean, you know, I think it's the time spent and the quality of the data that you that you get. It's just it's such a rapid method, right? In one session, in one three-hour session, from start to finish, we can develop language, gather that data, and create a report. So, you know, we're talking a much shorter process than it typically took us five days, eight hours, eight to 10 hours to develop a, a language and then um, go and collect that data. So there's significant cost savings with the culinary QDA that we've been able to provide our clients. And it's an investment in product knowledge. You know, we, it, we don't do it in isolation. It's an analytical tool. We try to make the information as usable by the requesters as possible because they're trying to solve a problem. And so what problem is that trying to solve if they're trying to match a competitor or they're trying to just understand product variability or uh, the category itself? Um, you know, this information, I, I, I do think it's an investment in knowledge, product knowledge, and um, it's widely used for anything from, you know, like we said, alternate suppliers, ingredient suppliers, um, co-manufacturing, all the way up to uh, legal issues, legal claims. Uh, you know, product perceptions that way. That kind of raises an interesting, um, what I would say is a hot topic within the food industry right now, which is the impact of the issues from the supply chain where key ingredients suddenly become unavailable. Now, I know this is forcing many businesses to be constantly looking at substitute raw materials. Can QDA be useful to to those people in the industry that are caught up with with that supply chain issues? I think it's the best tool to use for supply chain issues. You know, companies use discrimination testing and, you know, control. People can't get to control products to pass a discrim test. It is so sensitive. And we say, you know, products vary. It's okay to have some variability, but how much variability do you have in your current production? And as you bring in an alternate supplier, does that fit inside your current variability or outside? So not compare to one product, but compare to your range of products that you produce and, and know that, you know, at what point do, consumer, do, do consumers start noticing those things? And not all attributes are created equal. Some attributes you have to have a very tight range on. Other mm. attributes can vary more and it doesn't matter. 
But understanding wow. that and then figuring out I can use alternate suppliers. And we've had many cases where you know, things change and people can't get the ingredients that they were used to using. And I go back to one issue we had with a company that was, you know, they developed a product at a farmer's market. They got very successful and very popular, but they were doing, you know, like hand grinding the ginger and having all these spices from a local supplier. And, you know, as they wanted to scale up and get national distribution, uh, they could no longer do that. So how do you commercialize a formula that, you know, consumers love, but know that you're not going to be able to do anything the way you used to do it. You can't make small batch, two, two and a half gallon batches of this product. Now you have to fully commercialize, right? So, and, yes. and, and that's, you know, those are real issues that we're helping companies with. It's, you can make these changes, you can commercialize, but you need to understand your current product. And as you make changes, how does it fit inside your current uh, product window? So, so I think I'd rather open it out to, to both of you now and, and ask you to tell me what else you'd like our listeners to know about the QDA method. I'll start with that the QDA method is a scientific method. And if we think about science, we think about replication. Mm. And replication is important. It is a foundation of what the QDA method is about because we want to measure variability. And the only way to measure variability is to do it more than one time. So replication means that you're evaluating one product more than once and getting your variability around your perceptions of that of that product for every attribute. So I think that's a really important point about the QDA methodology that I want to share. And, you know, I think that uh, descriptive analysis is definitely some companies view it as you know, a nice to have, but once they understand, you know, we've worked for years with the major multinationals and they know they can dial in those products. Some of those products there, they've got so much information on. And our mission with Dragonfly Sci was to help the smaller producers understand the value of these types of tools and be able to use those tools in a way to, uh, to really gain their, their liking and, and build their business. So thank you for uh, telling us a little bit about QDA. I, I think that was really useful and it really helps us to, to understand what the methodology really is. So for Dragonfly SEI, what's next, say, beyond the culinary QDA, if you like? What else are you working on that uh, we should know about? We are working on a, a way to help smaller entrepreneurial companies understand the value of sensory science, right, in very approachable, affordable ways, things that they can do I think we are so high tech in our world these days and everything is electronic and we're going back to a paper pencil technique to train people as they come into the field. If you can understand some of the fundamental and the foundations and, you know, we do this, I do this in conjunction with the UC Davis program. You know, we teach a year long uh, certificate program because the sensory can look so easy. Everybody can taste, everybody can make an evaluation on a, on a product. We're saying in a scientific way, design an experiment to understand what you're, you know, what what the data is telling you, mm. and so we certainly do a lot of teaching in that area, and you know we are constantly working with clients on breeding programs, or you know we we don't, where do you aim your cannons uh, at a high level right. to set the strategy for the organization? Yes, and we like to see um, professionals get to that level. Mm. Mm. So uh, we're definitely champions for the for the science. Sounds good. 
So as we finish up here today, what advice would you give those listeners who've been inspired by the information that you shared and how can they get involved in this really exciting world of the sensory evaluation of foods? Well, I, I, sensory is one of those areas that uh, is not, some universities have great programs in the field, but other universities as part of their, uh, maybe a lecture in a food science class, right. um, other things. And, you know, really these techniques and tools is just understanding perception, measuring perception and understanding why that matters to a consumer. How can you change and make that product experience better? Mm. So, uh, you know, we say if you're interested in the field and you're not sure about sensory We've got the the next podcast we're talking about is Research Essentials, doing a a small three-product experiment. Uh, You can get a lot of information doing that, teaching you how to set up your, what's your hypothesis? How do you set up your study? How do you recruit consumers or recruit panelists to be on that thing? Uh, And then collect data, analyze that data, make some conclusions that solve problems for the business. So there are lots of ways to get engaged. There are short courses. We have a lot of societies in the field that are very good. The Society of Sensory Professionals, the Pangborn Symposium, uh, lots of great books. Uh, ASTM is also a good one. Uh, ASTM International, the Committee on Sensory Evaluation. Lots of ways to get engaged and involved and see what this field is all about. Mm, mm, very much. So Becky and Heather, I want to thank you very much for your time and sharing all your knowledge with us today. And and the inspiring stories of how we might more efficiently and more effectively improve our understanding of the sensory aspects of the foods we're working on. So I really learned a lot and um, it was uh, a lot of fun for me. So thank you very much. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you also to our listeners today. Without you, we would not have a podcast. So if you're enjoying SciDish, please let us know by leaving a review wherever you source your podcasts or by connecting with IFT. This episode was supported by the IFT Sensory and Consumer Sciences Division, which is a special interest group within IFT. Now, IFT has many different special interest groups, and I'd encourage you to go to the IFT website and look under the Community tab. And under there, you'll see all the different divisions that are available to members so that they can network and share best practices with lots of other members who might also have an interest in that special area. You can find us on Twitter using the handle at IFT and by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on Facebook and or LinkedIn. For more on the subject of sensor analysis of foods or really any other subject in the area of food, please be sure to visit our website at ift.org and type in the subject that you're interested in into the search box to gain access to a ton of resources. Thank you for listening to Side Dish. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Have a great day, everyone.